Every year, millions of global travelers flock to California in search of the world's finest cannabis. Our job is to get these travelers very high and show them a great time. It's not always as easy as you think. Join us, your heady hosts and cannabis tour guides, Victor Pino and April Black, as we spend an hour each episode trimming back the storied nuggets of life in the weed tourism game. We'll be joined by our friends, colleagues, and cannabis tourism legends from across the globe. So get on board the weed bus, buckle up, and as always, smoke them if you got them. You're about to get high on tour with Victor Pino and April Black. Thank you. We're back with another segment here at the um, Cannabis Buyers Club, uh, San Francisco, at the special special episode of High on Tour with Season George to my right. I have in front of me uh, today a very special, uh, a very special guest. That to me, I've, I've we've talked online, we've talked on the phone, we emailed. We have not sat down to do this yet until now, and I'm very honored to have in front of me legendary activist and CEO of Floor Dispensary in San Francisco, Mr. Terrence Allen. Thank you for joining us, Terrence. Thank you, Victor. I, too, have enjoyed our time during the pandemic, looking at you every month in Zoom, <laughs> going, I want to meet this guy. He's, he's got a fascinating way of looking at life. So I'm happy to be here. I appreciate that, Terrence. Tell me, first of all, it's baseline for our guests. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a big deal for me that you're here. Why should it be a big deal for them that that you're here. Like, tell me about where you got your roots started in cannabis and who you are. So, 1971, I had come out as a gay man, born in the 50s in Illinois, ended up in Europe, and in 1971, I made a decision that I wanted to explore what I felt was my true sexual identity, my gay sexual identity. And so where did you do that but San Francisco? And so I came to San Francisco. My first year, I decided to go to Cabo San Lucas, which at the time had no stoplight and no paved streets and no hotels. It was a fishing village. And I spent January down there in a little place, going to the beach, hanging out, talking to people that were coming down. And lo and behold, I met a guy who was who will remain nameless. I'll call him Rich, um, Rich, and he and I was out trying to gather people to party because the last group I had gotten together left because it's Cabo, so people come and go. <coughs> so I'm on the beach trying to go. Are you fun? Are you fun? I'm trying to figure out who's fun. And this guy, Rich, he he looked like fun, and his the guy with him was absolutely fucking crazy. I mean, he was not fun. He was just. Wacko. And so the two of them made a great pair, and I invited them over to party. And we had, you know, we usually had 25, 30 people, and we were the outrageous part of Cabo San Lucas during January because it was a fishing village still. Um, but we partied, and through the experience of being with him for about two weeks, he told me, it's harvest went bad. I'm like, your harvest of what? I'm growing pot, where in Humboldt, in Whitethorn. I'm like, where's Whitethorn? You know, I, I had to build a visual picture. And he said, I only have $3,500 to live on the entire year. 
and I decided to come to Cabo San Lucas and have a hell of a good time because I was going to be broke anyhow. So I liked that attitude. He came down, partied, and then went back up to Humboldt and worked his tail off all year. So I decided to befriend Rich and learn how to grow cannabis from him. And so this was the day when you would put 30, 40, 50 pounds of chicken shit on your back in a backpack and go out into the woods and cut down a bunch of scrub oak and put one cannabis plant on the south side of a redwood tree, find a spring up the hill, run the water down, set it all up, draw a little map because you're out in the middle of bumfuck nowhere, and then find the next one and make sure that they weren't close enough to attract the attention of camp helicopters. And that was how I learned to grow pot for several years. So that was just the beginning, though. That was the very beginning. Okay. That was the very beginning. And so then, take, us, take us through what brought you to San Francisco after Mexico. So being gay. Well, I had to okay. find my family. I was looking for my brothers. Okay. I was looking okay. to get laid. All right. And so I didn't know what that experience was like, and yet I figured if it wasn't happening in San Francisco, if that wasn't the lead, it wasn't happening anywhere. And right. so, of course, now I have cannabis and I have gay and I have a world traveler mentality. I come to San Francisco. I fit in very, very well. So where'd you end up? I ended up south of Market. South of Market. South of Market in the kind of alternative community, let me call it that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the bondage, S&M, leather, that mm-hmm. community. And who did you meet along the way that was that helped you know, propel you into, into the scene. So fast forward a few years, I, you know, we are starting to grow with lights. So um, uh-huh. I then could grow in San Francisco rather than having to drive up three times a week to, to Whitethorn to right. tend my plants. And so I, we began to grow indoors. And I, it was 19... Oh, God, what year was it? I, I need to have these years memorized. It was 1990, maybe, 89, 90. Uh, San Francisco had just passed Proposition P, which mm. said the cops cannot spend any money on marijuana enforcement. Right. And so who was the guy behind all that was a guy by the name of Dennis Perone, who right. I did not know at the time. But I was growing in my house. My husband was dying, and... Because I went to the same grow store twice, the feds had a program that they were funding in the state called Operation uh, Green Mission. Mm-hmm. And if you went to a grow house twice, they would write your license plate down and then track you down. Oh, wow. I lived in an old decrepit warehouse in south, south of Market next to a, a taxi yard. So... I looked like I was probably growing some huge amount of pot inside this big gas um, warehouse, but no, I wasn't. I was growing for my husband and I and learning how to do it. I had maybe 90 starts or something, and they raided us. I had disguised it so well that they couldn't find it. Finally, handcuffed to the floor for two hours, my husband is really sick. I say, if I show you where it is, will you leave? And so I told him, move that painting, open that door, there it is. That's what you're here for. So they arrested both of us. They didn't take Cameron in because of his, his condition, and they let me stay home to take care of him. But they arrested both of us, and he passed away before it went to trial, and I went to trial. Hmm. So I was the first test case. And who should show up at my house one day completely unknown Dennis Perone? Yeah. Knock, knock, knock. 
John Entwistle by his side. He walks in and he goes, you're the guy that just got arrested for growing pot. You qualify under Prop P. You should be our poster child for what we want to do next. And I said, I don't, I can't. My husband is too sick. So I, I got to know Dennis. He introduced me to Tony Serra, who represented me in that right. case. And Legend, I got attorney. I, and I got to know all the people of the San Francisco underground gay mafia that was running cannabis. Right. And the cops had called it a gay mafia, but I had never met the gay mafia. I didn't meet them until after they arrested me. And because they arrested me, then I got to meet them. So they were <laughs> responsible for me becoming part of the gay mafia because as soon as I learned Dennis Perone would buy any good weed and as much as you had, then I started to think about how I could grow more. Right, right. And so, you know, uh, a, an indoor grower was born. Very cool. AIDS crisis. Yeah. Bam, right. hit. Right, right. Hundreds of people a week were dying. Right. An unbelievable situation. Many of my friends, most of my friends were from artists' alternative community. They had no money. Right. They were barely surviving in their one-bedroom one apartment. And then they're sick and they can't work. Right. They were going to get evicted. There was no place to go. It was before my tree had opened. So there was no place to go but the hospital to right. die, Ward 86. So people didn't want to die in the hospital. And I had a, a great plan that worked for about 17 people. I went into their house. I took over their bedroom, I put in a two-light grow, and I picked up their rent and their pg &E Wow, wow. Until they passed, and then I moved it on to another place. Wow. And I had them all over the place, and mm -hmm. I was running around like a crazy person. That's insane. Also HIV positive, slowly watching my T cells right. decline, right. but what are you going to do? There was no cure, yeah. so I just kept going, plowed ahead. I think we're in 1980. What year are we now? We're, we're in 2023. Well, we're, yeah, today we're in 2023, <laughs> but I'm trying to think when all this began to happen. Prop 215. 96. 96. Yeah. Um, my husband dies in 93. I throw a big party in San Francisco that's busted for New Year's. And it's the out of that party, I spawned the San Francisco Late Night Coalition, which led the war on fun and created the Entertainment Commission. Okay. So that was my first experience outside of cannabis doing something legislatively. Right, right. Obviously, I took my cannabis friends with me. They helped. My late-night buddies were all late-night buddies because we grew at night because pg was cheaper at night. So we were all nighttime people, and it was a logical extension to try to do something politically, and that worked. San Francisco Entertainment Commission is still running today very successfully. And so I'm growing, selling, Dennis is doing his thing. Then Dennis decided to shut down. I think Dan Lundgren helped him decide to shut down, but he got shut down on, on Market Street. I then opened Champ on Church and Market in Dennis's old place. I do remember that. Champ remember, was yeah. the first Prop 215 compliant right. um, cannabis right. uh, co-op. Right. And we had a big fancy law firm that donated their money, so uh -huh. everything was done by the book. There was a board of directors, 12 of us, and then we put this cooperative together, and it was wildly successful, wildly successful. We gave as much weed away as we could. The people that could pay paid a little. What they paid 
kept bringing more money in, and we had piles of money. So we were fixing up the building. We were giving free acupuncture. You wanted to go to a therapist, we'll pay for that. You need groceries. The co-op was really serving its members. Right. It worked. The spirit of the co-op. It was really there. The The spirit of 215 was there. was there in that room every day, and it was magic. And, you know, then time goes on, and I forget what... There was a legal decision made, you know, obviously I'm not a legal beagle. Legal decision made that got handed down in 2000. The attorneys call us all together. We can no longer defend you. There is no longer a medical defense with the decision of this one judge. I I don't know, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but they had to pull out. And so we as a board, any board member that had anything, two cents, or had anything to risk, had to leave because we knew that eventually there was going to be a raid. So Michael Aldrich took control of Champ. And it was shortly after he took control that Champ was sued for failing to collect sales tax. And that battle went on for a year and a half with lots of good people working on it. And it eventually ended up with marijuana being tax-free. That's why when you go to a dispensary as a medical patient, you don't pay sales tax to today. It was a result of Champ's refusal to get pushed over by the bureaucracy. An incredible legacy you've created for yourself. And that has been the key word here, right, Season Legacy. We've been talking about legacy throughout this whole entire day, day, right? This is about the legacy of, of legacy of cannabis, legacy farmers, legacy practices. But I I want to hear more about, um, you know, you're obviously running a very successful, you know, enterprise business mm-hmm. with Floor, and you're doing yep. it so well to keep that spirit alive. I do want to tee you up, though. You know, we're talking about this humble legacy, this Emerald Triangle legacy. And when Season and I have talked, right, we've talked a little bit about uh, humble. The longer we wait to really market and really put Humboldt out in front, the less Humboldt is there. Right, so we're losing market share, right? As as a, as a story, yep. as as the history, dramatic market, dramatic share. market share. So, talk to me about that and why you came to talk to us today. So, if you can fly up a little bit and look out more than the next season and the next harvest, and look at what's happening to cannabis, to cannabis, and Find another product that you can relate to that you agree. So you can use coffee. You can use alcohol. They're two products that work in my example. And they went through three phases. They went through the Folgers phase where everything was homogenized and you just, oh, you got coffee in a can. Wow, that's amazing. Everybody got Folgers. And then you began with Starbucks and Pete's to have a more... um, individual coffee experience and now the third wave of coffee that's led by people like ritual coffee Mm -hmm. is where you know who grew the fucking coffee bean Mm -hmm. it's martha and ruggero and they're in belize and here's their kids and their donkey and you see a picture of them and when you buy that coffee you support that family that's happened with beer as well and what happened with beer in san francisco there were 45 craft breweries Consolidation happened as beer began to get consolidated under Anheuser-Busch and all the big companies, Budweiser at that point. Um, The craft brewers got put out of business, all Mm -hmm. of them, all 45, got wiped out. 
and only have come back 20 years later as people are tired of big production cannabis flavors and they want craft cannabis. So now we have more than 45 craft cannabis breweries popping up in Northern California. We have, I don't know how many hundreds, but they are satisfying the desire of the customer for something that's not mass produced. Okay, so Humboldt is already doing that with its weed. It's producing cannabis that you can relate to the people who grew it. John and Martha and their kids grew this cannabis, and it's from um, XYZ Farm, Sunshine Farm. And Sunshine Farm is a Humboldt farm, but it's a single family, and it can't pierce the marketplace, even down to L.A., has a problem getting to San Francisco, let alone be ready to expand across the country when that opportunity happens. And so what we need to do is we need to organize Sunshine Cannabis and all the small cannabis farmers under the Humboldt name and market, be prepared for when federal legalization happens to sell out the Humboldt name for a fuck of a lot of money and everybody would make a lot of money or scale it up yeah. and so, be prepared. So relying on the appellation and everything that kind and of... Rely on the it, appellation yeah. and, and again, the story of the individual farmer. Remember the coffee. If you go into a high-end coffee place, there will be a card that says, this coffee was grown by these people and you should like them. It tells the story. It tells it the tells story. It tells the story. Exactly. Yes. And so I think that that is such a brilliant you know, vision for what needs to happen. I mean, you were, you mentioned a couple of times throughout our conversation. Um, uh, what comes to mind is this, this, uh, this idea of the, ex your own very own acceptance of inevitability. Yes. Right. Exactly. This acceptance of inevitability. Are we doomed or are we, are we going to accept our inevitable dooming or do is there some way to fight back and and from someone who's been fighting for so long how do we how do we continue this fight by telling stories and convincing people one at a time once there are 10 12 people then they will begin to tell their story to their people that don't believe that this could happen or are too fiercely independent to join anything, fuck you very much. And by telling those stories and seeing the market change and having someone on this team, this cooperative, this marketing co-op, agricultural marketing co-op to be exact, mm. this agricultural marketing co-op that knows how to talk to the farmers, that right. knows the pain that they're feeling and it will only be through intense pain that this change happens for some people. Other people will see the vision and they'll, be, they'll jump right on. In fact, there's a company here called Uplift that's doing something just like this. And we're going to start conversations with them about helping them expand because they've just changed their co-op rules to take in weed from anywhere in Humboldt. Right. So they have the beginnings and if we can help them along and bolster them up and get people to actually spend their couple thousand dollar marketing budget on membership, then we have 10, we have 20 people, then we start to have enough money to actually yeah. make a difference. That's, that's a really, uh, really poignant view, I think. Uh, looking at this is kind of like, 
we all have to band together and stand underneath what we have, this umbrella of Humboldt County, right? This umbrella of the term. I mean, I see it in my tours, the guests I bring to California, the guests I bring up to, you know, the Emerald Triangle, Mendocino, et cetera. Humboldt means something. No matter where you are in the world. In the world. Humboldt means something. And Humboldt weed has gotten out to all parts of the world, yep. right? This is not, you know, we're just... We're not uh, building a brand from zero. No, no. We're, we're continuing a brand that's already worldwide. That, that is, you know, and like a phoenix from the ashes, mm-hmm. it shall rise again, right? Right, yep. season. I, I believe it. I believe it well. Thank you, Susan. We love agreement on this point. Yes, it's with agreement that change will happen. Yeah. I, I want to thank you so much, uh, Terrence, for being on the show and for conveying those important thoughts and important, this important vision that it's only through this togetherness. Yep. It's only through the perseverance of, of wanting it so bad that you will overcome your inevitability, if yep. you will, um, that we will rise again as a brand that preserves the legacy of people who are behind the product. And I think that that is the most important story we can tell, right? It's the story of the people. Um, It's the story of why it's the story of who they are and why they exist. So to that end, thank you so much, Terrence, for being with Victor, us Victor, this was fun. Thank I you. I probably talked longer than I should. No, you're but great. I had this a great time telling the story. Thank well, you. Well, thank you for being here, and All thank right. you for being such a staple in our community. Thank you. Thank you. Really? Thank you.